Good morning, and welcome to episode 439 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Hello. Hello. Any banter? I had some, but forgot what it was. Mm. Well, Greg Dobbs was designated for assignment by the Marlins, which I thought was funny because I don't think, I don't know if we ever talked about it. I meant to bring it up for banter during a show last year, but I don't think I did that, that the Marlins signed Greg Dobbs to an extension, not only in the middle of the season, like they really felt they needed to lock up Greg Dobbs, but it was a a Jeffrey Loria move that he negotiated Dobbs's contract without the knowledge of the team's GM or the team's president of operations. He went over everyone's head to lock up Greg Dobbs in the middle of the season. And now the Marlins have DFA'd Dobbs after 13 pinch hit plate appearances in which he batted 077. So a sad end to the, the longer than I would have expected Greg Dobbs era in Miami. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask you was last week we did the show where we guessed what players' career earnings were. I wanted to ask you, as soon as that plane flies by, what you think Freddie Garcia will make in Taiwan this season. Unless you already saw his salary, he is now the the highest paid player in Taiwan, topping Manny Ramirez. And I didn't have a great sense of... Uh, man, you have all kinds of vehicles passing by your house tonight. The uh, Manny Ramirez was the highest paid player. Now Freddie Garcia is the highest paid player. And I didn't really know what the pay scale in Taiwan was. Do you want to guess what he is making this season or, or per month? Um, I do. I do want to guess that. Um, so he's the highest paid currently. You don't know whether he's like a highest in history or is he? I guess highest Manny's in history. highest in history because Manny's not, not there anymore, right? Right. I honestly, like, I say Manny's not there anymore. I actually have no idea. Like, like nothing would, like, if you were like, no, of course, Manny's playing in Cuba. I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, nothing would surprise me. Um, I would guess that the highest paid player in, in Taiwanese history, I'm, I'm trying to think if you're asking me because the answer is interesting or because the question is interesting. Um, and <laughs> either is interesting. <laughs> well, if the if the question is interesting, it could be anything. It, you could have just started with the idea that the question is interesting. But if you're only asking me because you already knew the answer and you thought the answer is interesting, then it has to be either notably high or notably low. And for notably low, I would I would have guessed like say eight hundred and fifty thousand. And for notably high, I would have guessed probably uh, six million. And uh, but I'm going to guess that you started with the question and um, that the answer doesn't have to be by definition interesting. And I'm going to guess $2.7 million. It's actually lower than your notably low guess. Goodness gracious. Yeah, which is, I, I suppose that's what, what inspired me to ask this. I, I don't know why I did. But yes, he is, his deal is worth $56,000 per month. For, wow. Which over seven months, which is 392000 So the highest player in Taiwanese history makes less than the major league minimum. That's interesting because uh, Chris uh, Colabello was uh, apparently going to get a million from Korea, and, right? Uh, and Jap- right, Japan pays players yeah, well, yeah. much so, better than they can make here. So. so I didn't. I guess I didn't really know. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't know how to do the the uh, league league translation, but I mean, Chris Colabello money you wouldn't think would be <laughs> near the top. 
for no. whatever whatever league he's going to be in. I wonder, did Freddie Garcia not get any feelers from from Japan, from Korea? Maybe he just prefers Taiwan, wants to support their sovereignty or something. I don't know, but uh, but that was that was interesting to me. So Taiwan is not a place to go get rich playing baseball, apparently. So today is listener email show. We have many excellent. Wait, wait, Luke, yes. Luke, Luke Scott's in Taiwan. Hmm. Too. Uh huh. You'd think that Luke Scott would be <laughs> he'd make more than Freddie Garcia, making at least Freddie Garcia money. I mean, hmm. right? Because because yeah. Luke Scott wasn't. I don't get the feeling that Luke Scott was like completely unable to get a job in the states. Was he? Mm. I thought that I thought people went over there and did the Santori commercials, right? Because they were they were sort of cashing out. Like that's the that's the money move. You don't go over there because it's because uh, you have to take an an eighty percent pay cut. I I don't I, I never I never got the feeling that that's why you that why you went over there. But uh, Freddie Garcia did. Uh, Luke Scott is in Korea, I think. Uh, is he? Oh yeah, that that yeah. that would that would make sense. Yeah, that okay. explains it. Yeah. All right, so listener emails. Let's start with Scott, who says, If you could engineer a new performance-enhancing drug, which specific baseball performance aspect would be most beneficial to enhance, either as it relates to team success or individual career earning potential? Would it be one of the five tools or something far more particular? Mike Troutiness is a bit too broad a response for this question. Well, so... Um... I think that uh, I have two answers for this, uh, one of which is, I guess, within the realm of possibility. The other, it currently isn't. Um, but I, I would say that the answer of the tools is that I would, I would most want to add speed uh, to a player. Now, that's kind of weird because speed is, in a way, is the least valuable tool if you're, the, if you're a speed like you can't, you can't really make the majors if you're a speed only guy. Whereas you can make the majors if you're a hit only guy, mm-hmm. uh, or even a field only guy, right? But if you're if you're just a blazer and you can't do anything else, uh, you you know find a different sport, uh, basically. Um, however, I assume we're already talking about major league caliber players, and if there was one thing about major league caliber players that I would want to improve, it would be speed. Because uh, I don't know, I think that speed uh, really does show up. Uh, it has cascading effects uh, throughout their game, and more than anything else, uh, positional flexibility and the ability to move up instead of down, or perhaps down instead of up. I don't remember which is up and which is down, or maybe it's left and right. On the defensive spectrum, uh, feels like in itself, like if you could just take uh, the average major leaguer and move him two spots up the defensive spectrum, that's like a like a win, you know? Like it's really hard to get that sort of. Uh, value and performance alone that, that you would get by moving a guy from you know first to third without a defensive downgrade or mm-hmm. from from right to center and have him keep his his uh you know his 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 same skill level relative to the other position so uh, i would i would go speed I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say speed however uh, so why don't you answer but if you want but i well, have another answer as well how much of that is speed i mean going from first to third First to is third it, is not. You're right. First to right. third is not. It's but arm strength and I, I don't know whether speed is the same as reaction time. Yeah, but, yeah. I'm thinking more outfield, but yeah, you're right. Well, does health count? So my can, my other answer was going to be just uh, to have a, a a super strong ligament 
yeah, in your right. arm. Adamantium elbow ligament. And there was a there was a great I don't know if you saw this, but this was a um, a fascinating thing that I learned recently. Uh, there was talk by somebody, some some pundit, some columnist, maybe I don't want to slander anybody, but maybe Joel Sherman, uh, maybe, uh, saying, uh, speculating that like yeah. uh, more Tommy Johns were the result of of uh, of note of, of fewer steroids, of fewer PEDs right. in the game, and somebody pointed out that in fact there are no hormone receptors in yes. the ligaments, and so in fact there is uh, there is no there is no effect that they just do not actually react with each other, and so Where did I hear that I heard that also. Hang up and listen. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, right. So, okay, those are those are our answers. So, li- yeah, ligament. Okay, ligament or or shoulder though. Which, if you could only pick, if you had a, uh, if you if you had a, uh, you know, Jose Fernandez, and you could guarantee a healthy shoulder or a healthy elbow for the rest of his career, which would you choose? I think I'd probably take the elbow at this point. It seems. It, I, I mean the. The the take on that was always that elbow or shoulder injuries were more difficult to repair, and I think I think they said at Saber Analytics on that injury panel that that guys have actually had fewer shoulder surgeries recently just because the outcomes are are not great and there's been more rehab and and so there've been fewer surgeries but not necessarily better outcomes. But it it certainly seems like the elbow ones are more common now. And even if, even if the, even if most guys come back, it's still, still a year and a half until you're back at full strength if you are. So, probably that. It was Charles Sherman. Yeah, sounds right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Eric Hartman says, "I was listening to friend of the podcast Kevin Corrine's appearance with Jesse Thorne. I listened to that also. It was it was quite pleasant. Although you could also go back and listen to Kevin's appearance on this podcast. In uh, he is the the author of Dollar Sign on the Muscle, of course, which BP republished recently. In the intriguing interview, they go back to the very early days of scouting, where it seems people just tended to play hunches and tips from anyone who might know. It seems like scouting then, pre World War One, was just as infantile as statistical knowledge was in those days. So my question is, if you were running a team in, say, 1915, would you rather have a great modern-day scout or a great stats guy? We talked about what use it would be to be a great stats guy a century ago. Uh, we didn't yeah. talk about it a century ago, although it feels like it. We <laughs> talked about it probably a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, we, didn't, we weren't imaginative enough. I remember we were underwhelmed by the possibilities, and we got some responses uh, that that were uh, a bit more broad thinking. Um, but all the same, uh, it does feel like the lack of uniformity in statistics at the time um, would make it hard to, to do a whole lot. You know, like, yeah. like e- even if you were a great statistical mind, it's not like there's going to be pitch effects cameras mm-hmm. or anything like that. You'd still be doing pretty, pretty, pretty simple stuff. There, I mean, even, even... You know, even the box scores, as as I th- I think we've, I think people have discovered by you know Hack Wilson's missing RBI and stuff, are somewhat unreliable. And of course, uh, at the minor league level, which is really what we're talking about, uh, you're hopeless. I mean, there's there's I would say there's almost no way to use statistics for 1915 
uh, player development or scouting, um, you know, using statistics then because, you know, like there's like the, the leagues were a total wild west, right? I think I disagree. I mean, I agree that that's the way it was, but if you were a modern day scout, stat, stats guy transplanted to that era, then you would recognize the importance of keeping good statistics and you could send stringers to games and you'd be the only team with good statistics. Um, and you, as you said, you wouldn't have pitch FX or anything, but you'd have play by play stats. You'd have all the, the basic stuff that we have that doesn't require any advanced technology, right? You could set up a, a network and there were fewer teams then. So it would be easier to collect that information and you could, I mean, look how, look how effective just recognizing the value of on base percentage was in, you know, 2000, right? When the A's did it. So if you were doing that in 1915 and you're the only team that maybe even knows that that's a stat, um, seems to me like that would be very important. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking more that it's not so much that it's hard to necessarily get statistics for minor leaguers or, you know, what I don't even know what they were back then, you know, independent mm-hmm. leagues, other leagues, so much as it's hard to put them into context, you know, like the, you're not going to have the, the park factors for these fields. You're not going to have necessarily a great gauge of strength of, um, strength of competition. Um, and you know, you're probably not going to know like the age of every, every opponent that they played. And I mean, all these things that we sort of take for granted in putting, uh, putting stats in context, uh, wouldn't be available to you, but you're, you're right. I mean, you, you definitely could separate yourself in that sense. Mm-hmm. I just feel like, um, it, it feels like you're always like reading sort of about some, you know, like, I, I, I'm not going to be able to come up with an example off the top of my head, but some Hall of Famer who, um, you know, like was discovered because, you know, they needed a pinch hitter. Uh, so they, you know, pulled up the guy who won some promotion, you know, for selling newspapers in town. And uh, he ended up being like Walter Johnson or something. Like it, it just feels like there was there was very little uh, like like guys were – I might be wrong about this. I, I mean, I, I get bits and pieces of history, but it feels like like great players were lingering uh, in these like unaffiliated leagues or non-major leagues for way too long. Like that's a constant story. It's like, yeah, this guy was there for like six years. Yeah, before he finally you know got his contract purchased by the Yankees and and you know won the MVP. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I might be wrong. Who knows? Probably. Take the scout. If I mean, if if the scout's strength is that he can go out and find players, then I would take the scout because it does seem like that was a big part of it. Just just having a network of contacts and following up these tips and hearing about players. So, uh, you know, if if there were two guys and and they both had the same scouting skill, but one of them was just better at finding players or hearing about players, that guy would probably be very valuable at that time whereas now it's much much less so because it's very hard to find a player that every other team doesn't already know about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um all right let's do this one from kevin in toronto as i write this on tuesday morning moises sierra of the blue jays is currently sporting an 067 097 067 163 that's his ops slash line 
with a paltry two hits, both singles, and one walk in 31 plate appearances. Given this lack of production, would Sierra have a greater chance of reaching base if he went to the plate without a bat in his hand and tried to draw a walk or hit by pitch before being called out on strikes? How low would a, would a hitter's OBP have to be before it made sense for him to go to the plate without a bat? This is uh, kind of one of your pet topics, right? As, as it relates to pitchers at, at the plate, at least. I've answered this, but I don't remember the answer. Hmm. So I don't. I wouldn't expect anybody else to remember the answer uh, mm-hmm. either. But yeah, I. I uh, in fact, uh, we're going to talk about pitchers hitting in a little bit. Oh, excellent. And uh, and uh, Ian Kennedy for a little while <laughs> uh, was walking in like seven, like every seventh at bat, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not like. It's not like he was a threat. His bat did not present any sort of a threat. He's a terrible hitter. So I have to imagine that um, that bat or no bat, the result would have been roughly the same. And he did swing sometimes, and so he, he cost himself some walks by actually hitting the ball. Um, so yeah, this was 2012. He walked 11 times and 73 bats. This year, uh, John Neese, who actually is the uh, – Believe it or not, I, I know this off the top of my head because it's something I just wrote for uh, Wednesday. John Neese is the current uh, active leader for pitcher walk percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he walks about 9% of the time. And he's walked, I think, four times in eight at-bats this year. Uh, I would think that you could put together a... We, I know I, I, there is an answer to this that we've known at one point, but I forget what it is. I think that I want to say that you can put together like a, a 110 OBP or maybe a, an 091 OBP without mm-hmm. ever swinging, if you never swing. Well, so, so the probability of, of throwing a strike in any one pitch, I mean, that stat that we always cite about how pitchers, when facing pitchers who have a 3-0 count, only throw strikes 67% of the time, two-thirds of the time. Yeah. And, of course, that's a, a selective sample. It's pitchers who are going to 3-0 on pitchers, so probably not the best control guys in the league. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but, but if still, we, major league pitchers right. on the mound and throwing to a person who is under no circumstances going to swing right. and who all the incentives are for them to just throw a strike right down the middle. And so even if you bump that to 70 or you know even... I would say this is generous, but even if you bumped it to 75%. Yeah, right. I was going to say 75 also. So so if you, I mean, is this is a probably a pretty simple probability thing, right? It if is. It's a, I asked, and yeah. each, of the, each of the pitches would be independent probability because the guy doesn't even have a bat, so you'd be just as likely to throw him a, a strike. You're just as likely to throw him a ball down the middle on... Oo, as you would on three o, because he can't possibly hit the ball. So it's... hey, hang on. I had uh, I actually had Zachary Levine uh, answer this for me uh-huh. not that long ago, like three months ago. Oh, perfect. Uh, so I'm finding it's in two emails, but at seventy five percent, at seventy five percent, it's a four percent chance of a walk, mm-hmm. and at sixty seven percent, it's a ten percent chance of a walk. Uh huh. So if you believe it's 67%, then you'd have a uh, 100 on base percentage if you never swung. Uh, if you believe it's 75%, you'd have a 40 on base percentage if you never swung. Problem is, if you don't even have a bat, then 
there's no real reason for the pitcher even to throw it, you know, 90 miles an hour. He could he could lob it in. Yeah, but we've already established with the 3-0 situation. Right, but that's, well, I mean, guys on 3-0 are still throwing the ball hard, you know, they're still throwing actual pitches, whereas... I think, a, I think, a, I think though, that a pitcher who swung on 3-0, uh, even if it were a 65-mile-an-hour pitch tossed right over the heart of the plate, if that pitcher swung, he would get his neck wrung by his manager. I think yeah. that the pitcher on the mound can feel pretty confident that that's a freebie. I don't think that throwing 65 would help him. To, mm, I, I think that these guys are pretty good at pumping 88. I mean, I that's there's what they're a, there's a calibrated psych- for. psychological aspect to it where there's a guy standing there with a bat, so you have to throw something that looks like a real pitch, even if you're sure that he's not going to swing. Whereas if you have a guy who's not even trying, then you're free to do anything. There's no unwritten rule that you have to throw a legitimate-looking pitch. You could do whatever would would make you most likely to throw a strike. And I do feel like, I don't know, I mean, you don't think that... You've seen guys, like, warming up on the sidelines and just throwing hundreds of feet to some guy who's in right field, and there's a guy at home plate, and they're just throwing really far, just looking at guys... Warming up in spring training, just lining up along the baseline and playing catch. You don't think that just sort of throwing the ball as if you are playing catch with the catcher, that there would be no benefit in accuracy? No, I think from from that distance and from that, I mean, you're elevated. You're on a mound. Um, you're, I think that your best chance of throwing a strike is doing what you what comes most naturally to you, and for them, for having thrown like literally hundreds of thousands of pitches in their life, uh, I think that they're calibrated to a to a fastball, to not necessarily the hardest fastball. I think they can ease up, but I don't think a pitcher would throw more strikes, especially if it was once, you know, like like a, a one time thing. I mean, th- this is not a throw that they're that they've made. They've never practiced this throw. I've, they've never practiced the sixty five mile an hour throw home Mm. so no i don't think so i think that you would see a lot of funny throws if they tried to do that i mean look at guys throw intentional balls you see guys Mm -hmm. don't really know how to how to do that that's true Hmm. all right well it probably doesn't make sense to not bring a bat then with with the possible exception of jpr and cbia i feel like maybe he should look into this but otherwise otherwise probably good to bring one uh, all right, let's do one more from Fred in Kazakhstan, who asks, what do you think the batting slash line would be for the league against an average pitcher with average stuff, except that he has absolutely perfect control? I've always wondered how well batters could hit if pitchers never made mistakes. So this is sort of... Contro- control, sort of to, control to any quadrant, to control... Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing he means command right i mean yeah, if yeah. if he has perfect control then he probably also has perfect well no that's not true but he could well perfect control would i guess mean that he could throw a strike whenever he wants to it doesn't necessarily mean that he could throw to a pinpoint location every time i think all of us right now has got a different idea of what average stuff is um, we're all thinking, we're all imagining different comps. One person's thinking Greg Maddox and another person is thinking Eric Stoltz. And we're all, we are, so it, for that reason, it's probably hard to give an answer that would be, um, that, that would ring true to everybody. I think that a pitcher with perfect control and perfect command, uh, if he had 
anything like Major League stuff would do great. Like phenomenally, yeah. uh, Cy Young, uh, unstoppable. Yeah, I agree. Because um, even if you, yeah, right. If you look at uh, how hitters do when they swing at pitches outside the strike zone, it's very bad relative to how they do inside the strike zone. And this guy, I mean, he could he could do all the things that pitchers try to do, change eye levels and go inside and outside and hit the hit the outside corner at the knees every time. And even if, I mean, I, I kind of wonder whether or how well hitters would hit if they were facing a pitcher who just threw on the outside corner at the knees every time with, yeah. with pretty decent velocity. So they yeah, know without they, even moving. Yeah. Right. So they know exactly what the location is, but it's at the location that is hardest to hit. So I wonder wonder how they do against that pitcher. This pitcher can be that pitcher, but he can also put the ball anywhere else he wants to. So it would um, it would be hard to hit that guy. I wonder what percentage of that guy's pitches first of all, I wonder what percentage of that guy's pitches would be at the at the bottom left corner, you know, at that far, at that low outside corner, like right on the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, I wonder what percentage of pitches he would still throw outside the strike zone. Yes. Uh, by choice. Mm-hmm. I would guess, uh, I would guess 12% out, no, that's maybe low, 16% outside the strike zone, and of the pitches inside the strike zone, 85% low and away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, do you want to do the Play Index segment now? Sure. Uh, this is the Play Index segment brought to you by the Play Index. Uh, so I uh, am. I just wrote a piece, I just submitted a piece about the Mets, who are hitless as a pitching staff this this season. They're uh, 42 at-bats into the season, and they have a o o o batting average. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I like these sorts of things when pitchers go a long time without getting a hit. Yep. Um, and so I, I wanted to see what the worst pitching staff, uh, the worst hitting pitching staff ever was. So I used the play index tool. This is actually a, uh, I'm, I'm misleading you with where this is going just for what it's worth. Uh, so I used the play index tool. I used the team splits finder, which I don't mm-hmm. think we've ever used. Mm-hmm. The team splits finder. I went to batting splits. I went back to um, like 1950 or something like that. Uh, and I chose by defensive position um, and uh, filtered by pitcher only. And then I sorted by OPS. Uh, and then I set a minimum plate appearances of like 100 so that I get rid of the AL teams in the interleague era. And then I um, used ascending order and I clicked get report. And um, the worst team ever was the 1965 Tigers, who had a 214 OPS. They also have the worst batting average ever, 080, 125, 090. But 1965 was uh, make-believe baseball. There were not no offense at all. So uh, I went to the next team, mm-hmm. which was the, the 2010 Dodgers, who uh, were one point of batting average better, uh, and they had the second-worst OPS at 220. They had an 081, 132, 088. Line and so then I, I I wondered like who who were their pitchers and so I went and I looked and there was nothing that interesting except one of their 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 starting pitchers and a guy who sucked up 68 plate appearances for them was Hiroki Kuroda who hit 036 070 036 that season uh, two hits in 68 plate appearances both singles and a couple of walks um, and so then that got me wondering um, do Japanese pitchers hit worse 
than American pitchers? Do mm. Japanese-born pitchers hit worse than American pitchers? So do you, uh, before I go on, do you, do you want to posit any sort of hypothesis of how they would do and why or, or hmm. what you might expect to be a difference or not a difference and why? Uh, I would guess that they're more successful bunters, probably, than uh, just because of the emphasis on bunting and fundamentals in Japan. It seems like something where you probably wouldn't be able to get away with not being able to bunt as a pitcher, um, since it seems like almost everyone is expected to be able to do that. As for actual production, uh, I'm, I'm going to say no better. Uh, no better and no worse. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hang on. I'm doing something real quick for the sacrifice bunts. Okay. So, uh, in fact, they are, uh, I would say, considerably worse. So, I, this was a, I did a second play index search for this. Um, oh, no. I just hit the wrong thing and now my tab. All right. <laughs> Good. I'm back. Wait. Am I? Yes, I'm back. All right. Okay. So, I did a second play index search. Uh, for this one, I, um, I searched for all batting season find uh, all batting seasons since 1993 uh, for anybody who played pitcher uh, mm -hmm. and was born in Japan, and so I got that report and I uh, copied it over into a Google Doc spreadsheet, which is extremely simple. And then I did a bunch of summing, and then I uh, went back to where I was and uh, searched. For uh, I went back to the team split finder and searched for all pitchers since 1993, which you can do in the team split finder. You can also search by leagues. So I got all pitchers since 1993, so during the same time period, um, and I compared them. So um, in this era, in this 20-year uh, period, basically 22-year period, uh, Japanese pitchers are 21 points of batting average lower, 123 to 144. It's a pretty significant number, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the rest of their slash line is also lower. But you know, batting average is lower, so it probably would be. So uh, their isolated power is uh, about three quarters as high, a little less than three quarters, about seventy percent as high. So they are not nearly as strong or as powerful as American pitching hitters, American hitting pitchers. Uh, their uh, their hit by pitch rate, strangely is about one-fifth huh. of what American-born... Well, I guess these aren't American-born. These are everybody else. So, mm -hmm. yeah. A one-fifth the rate of the rest of the league, which seemed interesting. Yeah. Their sacrifice fly percentage, oddly, also about one-fifth or about one-fourth. Uh, so significantly lower sack fly and significantly lower hit by pitch. Um, their walk rate is about the same, uh, negligibly greater. Uh, their strikeout rate is a bit worse. A uh, few more strikeouts, but not a significant amount. They steal ever so slightly more bases. About, well, not ever so slightly, uh, but the numbers are so small that it's hard to say it's significant. And their sacrifice bunt rates uh, per plate appearance are essentially identical uh, huh. to American or uh, to, to non-Japanese hitters. So um, there's a little bit of an issue here. Uh, while we have 117,000 plate appearances by pitchers overall, mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty good sample, uh, we only have about 2,000 by Japanese-born pitchers. Right. A quarter of them are from Hideo Nomo. Uh, this might be skewed somewhat for that reason. 
Uh, there's basically five guys who had extended careers uh, and hit a lot. Um, uh, Nomo, Oka, Kuroda, Yoshi, and Ishii. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a, a total of, I guess, 38 players, uh, 30, no, not, uh, yeah, about 38 players represented in total. Um, and uh, basically not one of them was any good. Uh, Dice K is the best. Uh, he has a 192 batting average, but no walks and no extra base hits in about 20 career plate appearances. And really, no other, uh, no other Japanese player in that time, not a single one, managed an OPS that was better than the pitcher's average. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that seems somewhat compelling to me that they are all below. That even though the sample is a, is an issue, uh, every single one of them is below except Daisuke, who's uh, you know one single away from being below. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of interesting, I guess. Yeah, sure. Hmm. I, I would you would you speculate about why it is? Is it just you know less athletic players, or is it that they've they haven't faced pitching as good in Japan? And so there's an adjustment there. Um, well, I mean, why Japanese hitters generally are 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 tougher to predict and tend to be more disappointing in Japanese pitchers uh, than Japanese pitchers, right? Just in general. Yeah, that's a fair characterization of yeah Japanese imports. So I don't know. Yeah, I would guess it's a lack of physicality. Mm-hmm. Most most American-born players, uh, American-born pitchers, are selected in part because of their size and athleticism they tend to be big strong guys mm-hmm. and um the the japanese pitcher that you're thinking of right now is not a big strong guy so i would just imagine that they're just not quite as strong i mean most of the uh, most of the effect shows up in the batted balls if you look at approach if you look at contact rates if you look at walk rates they're fairly consistent uh but when they hit the ball they just don't seem to hit it as hard uh so they get fewer hits on contact and they get your extra base hits per hit, and that seems to be as uh, as deep as you need to go, probably. Mm-hmm. All right, this question comes. Oh, and, and so use the the coupon code BP, which gets you a discount on the Play Index if you subscribe for a year. You get that discounted rate of thirty dollars. So do that. There's a money back guarantee if you don't like it, but you will like it, and it's it's constantly adding features. It's uh, it's an excellent tool to have. So, next question comes from Kyle. What do you think is the essence or ultimate purpose of sabermetrics? Some possibilities include to increase enjoyment in the game, to change the evaluation strategy of multiple aspects of the game, to question the norms and traditions of the game, to re-ask basic questions to learn more about what truly matters in baseball, and the acceptance of outside thinking to make improvements. I am curious, what fuels our passion for sabermetrics and why it has caught on so readily? What do you think, Ben? Uh, well, the the adoption of sabermetrics in the game, I think, is driven largely by the fact that there's a lot of money to be made. And I don't know to what extent that drives the public sphere of sabermetrics i don't know whether a lot of people obviously have have made it a career have started out on the internet or just on their own time doing sabermetric stuff and now they work for baseball teams and and that's something that may not be the most financially rewarding option for them but 
it's in terms of lifestyle and, and enjoyment, it's close to the top of the list. So, so for a lot of people who are writing about sabermetrics on the internet, there's some financial incentive and, and just the lure of being able to work on something that interests you. I guess the, that leads to a question of why it, we find it interesting. But, um, but if you, if you could divorce it somehow entirely from the career motivations and the financial motivations, then I'm sure it would not have caught on so, so readily. Yeah. I think the point of it is mainly to win, to win baseball games. It seems to me that baseball is a, a very, uh, it is in 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 action is in uh, in the way that it is enacted is a very utilitarian. It doesn't have to be, but it is a very utilitarian sport. And sabermetrics is a particularly utilitarian um, uh, um, expression of it. Uh, it's uh, it's it seems to me uh, that while it does not affect uh, my enjoyment the way that the straw man argument accuses it of doing. Um, it does, you know, put a focus on something other than aesthetics generally, and uh, and it, it really does try to. As uh, John Thorne once told me, um, uh, sort of dismissively of not dismissively because John Thorne is of course, um, you know, a, a proto sabermetric mind and writer, mm-hmm. um, but uh, sort of uh, conflictedly he said, you know, the essence of, of baseball or the most important question of baseball is not, uh, you know, who is who is a better baseball player, Dwight Evans, or, you know, some other guy that he named. Um, and sabermetrics essentially is, th- that is the defining question of sabermetrics. It, it, it is completely directed toward um, the search for objective truth, and objective truth in this case is valuable primarily uh, as a means of winning more baseball games and making more money. Uh, and I think that that is something that most of us feel. We feel a sort of strange uh, uh profit response to being to being right about these things and i think it expresses itself in fantasy baseball expresses itself in all sorts of ways sometimes it just expresses itself in our feelings of smug superiority and or unsmug superiority you can be Mm -hmm. superior without being smug Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that we all feel like we're uh you know that that when when we know things that are right and when we can exploit those things that um that we profit from it so i think sabermetrics is essentially uh, in a in a uh, in a way that doesn't sound that isn't nearly as depressing as this is going to sound, but it is essentially a business consultant's uh, way of doing baseball. Mm-hmm. But you and I don't stand to benefit in most of those ways, right? I mean, if we if I we do. F- <laughs> you do if we if we find some maybe from the the smugness, maybe we yeah. both enjoy that. Yeah. But in terms of of being better at winning games, neither of us works for a team. Neither of us is going to work for a team. So it's, uh, we don't really have any incentive to, to have teams win better, do we? I mean, no, it's not why do we direct. care if it's they're, a, if they're more efficient? I guess we, we have carved out careers writing about this stuff. We have a, a, a podcast that has made us rich and famous beyond our wildest dreams. But other than that, I, I mean, is it just the, it just appeals to us on it's, some other level. Right. The profit is not that direct and it's not that literal. I mean, I think that this is something that it's, it's, a, it's some synapse in your brain that responds to this, that, um, 
I mean, I, I kind of wrote about this a couple, maybe six months ago or so, um, about, uh, I don't remember what it was about, but I wrote about how um, baseball, when I was six, um, was the way that like like there was there, even then when I got into it there was sort of a profit element to it because um, when I was six I knew a lot about baseball I knew all the players I knew all their stats and I memorized their stats because it was a really cool parlor trick that I could bust out when my uh, when I was at like my dad's work or hanging out with my parents friends and it made me feel like a grown up and it got me respect and it got me kind of in the door with you, the grown ups you almost just made yourself the subject of take me out to the ball game. You, I don't know what that is. You you knew the players and knew all their names. What is "Take Me Out to the Ball Game"? It's a song. It's a popular song. Popular oh. song. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that that bit of Americana. That song. Yes, right. Uh, anyway, so I think that there is a uh, there there is a feeling um, there is there is a reward to feeling like you've seen behind the curtain or that you're. Uh, that you're able to speak better. I, I also, I mean, this has been, there are echoes of this throughout my life. I remember being in high school and uh, feeling like it was very important that I know more about sports because it felt like knowing about sports was sort of a social currency, like being able to win. Like like in high school, so many conversations about sports are like like talk radio arguments. And, who you know, these guys are like sort of, yeah, you're all yelling at each other and you're all throwing facts and and if you win you feel like you've won something like when Skip Bayless was talking about how you know how he wins how he's like he does all like his six hours of prep so he can win mm-hmm. his around the horn or whatever um, like that's what it felt like in high school and and th- I think that there's I don't know exactly what it is but I think there's some part of your brain that values uh, this knowledge and uh, and that's why it's rewarding to us. I don't know what else it would be. <laughs> I can't. I'm such a. I'm such a cynical person. I feel like such a broken and 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 fallen person that I can't imagine an, a non selfish reason that we do anything. <laughs> so it's more like trying to find the 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 profit to fit my existing worldview than mm-hmm. <laughs> than maybe anything else. Yeah. All right. Home stretch. Aaron asks if Donald Sterling owned a baseball team, how do you think MLB or Bud Selig would have handled this situation? Sterling, of course, is the the owner of the Clippers, who was just banned for life by NBA commissioner Adam Silver after a recording surfaced of him saying extremely racist things in a conversation with his girlfriend or mistress or whoever it was. And he had a history of, of saying these things. So the question is, if if there were a baseball equivalent to Donald Sterling, what would Major League Baseball, what would Bud Selig do? And there is, or there was, more or less, a baseball equivalent. Jay Jaffe made that connection and wrote about that connection today at Sports Illustrated. Uh, Marge Schott, the Reds owner, said some very David Sterling-esque things, arguably, arguably worse. I don't know, it's hard to... Hard to compare things that are really terrible. They're both, they're all terrible. But March Shot had a long history of uh, saying things, uh, racist remarks, praising Hitler, uh, how Hitler started out well is more or less what was her point. And so baseball responded to her by 
a less less dramatic means than Adam Silver took, just sort of slowly forced her out. So they, Bud Selig suspended her in 1993 for the 1993 season and also fined her and ordered her to attend sensitivity training, which evidently did not take. Um, and she sort of tried to make up for it a bit by hiring some minority members of the front office and donating a lot of money to minority causes and apologizing for her insensitivity. But she did not change her ways. Uh, In 1996, she she came out with some more pro-Hitler comments and uh, other comments, and she was then suspended by Selig again for two and a half years. So through the 1998 season, and then they sort of forced her out by threatening to extend her suspension uh, and using that as leverage to get her to sell her controlling share of the team, which happened in 1999. Uh, and then she was more or less out of baseball at that point. So if someone else came along with that, um, you know, that kind of behavior today, I would I would guess that that baseball, that Bud Selig would act even more swiftly than than it did, than they did at the time. And uh, certainly now that the precedent has been set, I suppose, by Adam Silver, um, I mean, baseball would look bad if it didn't do something similarly dramatic, right? So if if some owner came out and said the same things that, that Donald Sterling said tomorrow, I would guess that Bud Selig would say something very similar. Actually, uh, you probably heard this week's Hang Up and Listen, right, where they were talking about this issue, and Mike Pesca was talking about some things that Jim Crane has done, the owner of the Astros, and how maybe there's some hypocrisy in not criticizing those things just because they have not surfaced on a recording like Sterling's did. So right. that would that would be my guess that, that baseball would take a similar course of action. I will say this about Marge Schott. Everything you read, when she came in, she was good. You know, she built tremendous bullpens and got all the team to the World Series. Everyone knows she was good at the beginning, but she just went too far. <laughs> yes. Good point. Good point. Um, all right. Uh, there was right, one more. This is from Danny. He says, considering the national narrative surrounding the Marlins prior to the start of last season, has any player provided more value on the field and in the national conversation than Jose Fernandez has over these past 13 months? I know this is impossible to quantify with just baseball numbers. However, attempts at value assessments often cite how the financial impact of each win above 81 can carry a dramatically higher return than those in the middle. Do you think it is the same as possible for an electric and dominating player on a team that wins 70-ish games? This is essentially the same question we could have asked about young Felix Hernandez. Although to me, the 2012 to 13 Marlins offseason narrative seemed like a special kind of rock bottom. So he's basically asking whether... Whether there's more value in a truly terrible team and maybe a team with a, a terrible reputation as well as on-field results, whether it's as valuable to that team to have a great charismatic player who can kind of distract everyone from that story as it would be for a team that is actually competitive to have a player who could push them into the playoffs. I... Uh, I did a piece last September on casting un, uh, unconventional MVP votes. Do you remember that piece? Nope. Uh, so it was like if you wanted oh, yes. to, yes, yeah, right. if you wanted to pick somebody other than Cabrera and Trout, and you wanted to be like the the sort of attention getting uh, voter who 
creates a brand new, uh, brand new uh, reason to vote for somebody. You can vote for these people, and you know I think they were all they were all great players who had great seasons. And one of them was uh, Fernandez, and I I wrote um, at one point. More importantly, you might even argue that is to say, you might even argue this because you are an MVP voter with creativity and ambition. That without Fernandez, Miami would have given up on baseball forever this year, and that Fernandez gave the city exactly one reason to continue its relationship with the Marlins. He might have saved baseball in Miami. He might not have, but he might have. Come on, Ryder, do this. You can totally do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, um, uh, this is one of those situations where, uh, like you could say that, I mean, certain, like if you start with the presumption that Trout has been better than Fernandez, like objectively speaking, he's been a a better player on the field, Mm -hmm. uh, than Fernandez, you could very easily make the case that if Trout were there, that he would have been the most value like if you're if you're saying that fernandez is the most valuable simply because of these sort of weird circumstances mm. that thrust him into into this messianic role for a team that um you know was otherwise wandering loss uh it's not like he's the only guy who would have been you know good right. enough to be exciting and then so you're I think, giving the award to cabrera because his teammates were better than mike trout's teammates yeah mm. yeah exactly so uh so you don't want to you don't want to give the the award to the to the to the narrative that creates you know or to the to the to, I guess to the uh, environment you want to give the award to the player and so mm-hmm. while while Fernandez uh, I think that this is a, a reasonable argument this person makes it's under it's probably understated how important Fernandez has been to Florida baseball mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I'll just end it there because sure okay. All right, so that's it for this week. Please send us more emails for next week at podcast@baseballperspectus.com. Please rate and review the show and subscribe to the show on iTunes and please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And we will be back tomorrow with a new show.